So, God told you to write a book. Now what? Hi, I'm Wendy Jo Serna, author, narrator, wife, and mother. I've written and published two novels thus far without really having any clue what I was doing. All I knew for sure was that I had heard from the Lord that I was to write a book. Beyond that, it was all just one grand adventure of faith and a lot of work. And along the way, I learned a few things, things I'd like to share with you. If I can do this, you can do this. You can write your book. Hey, if the author and finisher of all things told you to do it, he believes that you can. And so do I. So come on. Let's write. Hello, authors. Welcome back to episode eight of So God Told You to Write a Book, Now What? I'm your host, Wendy Jo Serna. Today we're going to look at some of the extras that you put in your manuscript. The things beyond the actual storyline that need to be included to make your book a book. Things like a copyright page, an acknowledgement page, a dedication page, about the author, maybe a bio, some of those sorts of things that need to get added. That's what I'm in the process of doing this week, so that's what we're going to talk about. I guess the Brits would call it the bits and bobs, the small pieces, the little extras, the things sort of here and there, right? The bits and bobs. First thing you might want to think about is your dedication page. Who do you want to dedicate this book to? Maybe it's someone who's inspired you. Maybe it's someone who's walked alongside you in the process. It could be any number of people, but someone that you particularly want to honor. Because once this book is out there, lots of people will read that dedication page and you will give honor to whoever those people are. The Baby Catcher Gate, I gave honor to some of my friends and relatives who had walked through the very tragic situations and circumstances of losing children. I also had dedicated it to any moms whose children live beyond the gate of heaven. To me, that was what the book was all about. I had walked with those women in particular through some very difficult circumstances, and it had forced me into a place of having to know more about heaven. Like I believed in it, but when I walked through those kinds of griefs, I just needed to know more. And so those women and those children, they're the ones who gave me the impetus to write that book. I don't it, I don't think it would ever exist without those people in my life. So think about who do you want to dedicate this book to? The second book I dedicated to my mom and dad because guess what? They deserve it. They're the ones who inspired me to read and to write and gave me all kinds of books and all kinds of educational opportunities. And also I dedicated it to their parents who went before them because they did likewise. And so I reaped the rewards of several generations of those kinds of intentionalities. So who do you want to dedicate the book to? You also need to think about who do you want to acknowledge outside of a dedication page, just an acknowledgement page. You'll see this in most books and go and read some and see what you like and what you don't like. Some people are very lengthy in the amount of people that they include and some are just pretty short. But people like editors or copy editors or designers or publishers are very much included in those things. Oftentimes family members who have put up with you as you've as you've gone through the writing process. I've included friends who've 
taken time to be my first readers and give me some of that very first feedback about the readability or not of my manuscripts. I've included people who've prayed for me or church family or friends or just whoever has gone through this particular season of life with you and supported you as you've written your book. So acknowledgments are very important. Another page you're going to want to put in is an author bio. It doesn't need to be extremely long, doesn't need to tell every moment of your existence, but it needs to give people a little bit of an idea of who you are, where you've come from, maybe some of your educational background or your experiential background, um, your family situation, well, whatever you want to include in there, you can include, just to give people a little personal glimpse about who you are in particular. I've also included a couple of things that are just kind of fun at the end of my last two books. Uh, <laughs> in The Baby Catcher Gate, it's set in Minnesota, and I had written several times that there were people having coffee and cookies and bars. And the gal who was editing that story was from Nashville, and she grew up in the South. And so she she asked me, I, what are bars? I, I don't understand what that is. And it never occurred to me that people who weren't raised in the upper Midwest, they don't know what bars are. So I put in the back of the book, I put several recipes for bars because bars are ubiquitous at uh, gatherings and social, function, social functions in Minnesota, North Dakota, Iowa, Wisconsin, those areas of the country. I don't know why that is, but I just grew up with them. And bars are a marvelous, wonderful phenomenon. There's all kinds of bars from brownies to uh, all kinds of desserty, sort of ice creamy bars and um, caramel bars and apple bars and pumpkin bars and anything you can think of to put into a bar. They do it and they do it really well. So I included some of my favorite bars recipes in that book. In my second book, uh, the agreements. There was a family who was of Mexican descent, and the uh, grandmother in that family, she made all kinds of amazing, wonderful Mexican food. And so I married into a large Mexican-American family, and I've experienced the wonders of the Mexican cuisine. And my mother-in-law in particular could crank out some really wonderful food. I included in that book a recipe for tortillas that were from my mother-in-law, Josie. So you can include some of those kinds of fun things if you want to. It's your book. I even put in the back of The Baby Catcher Gate, I put in there a poem that I had written for um, my brother-in-law who had uh, lost his daughter in a car accident. And I felt like I had dedicated so much of that book to the moms in particular that I wanted to put something that was just for the dads at the end. So I put that in the back. So think about some of those things that are special to you, particular to you, and maybe would give your readership uh, a little bit further glimpse into your world and of who you are and where this book and this story have come from. What I've spent a lot of time this week on is two things I've been writing about. One I wrote about, about the book. Where did this book evolve out of in my life. And another section I'm going to put in this book, I'm going to write about the setting, because the setting of this book is very particular. Let's start with about the book. 
This book evolved over a fair number of years. I had spent time, in my time with the Lord, I had spent time on two very particular, I don't know, contemplations, I guess we'll call them. One of them sort of started with the Easter season one year, several years back, and I got to thinking about the resurrection and what took place inside of that tomb. And I would go in my mind and in my spirit and imagine what it was like to sit inside that dark tomb with the body of the Lord Jesus Christ laid out as his friends and family had laid him out in the dark. And then I would think about what was that moment like when life reappeared, when life hit that body and he came back to life. What was that like? And I let myself sit in that place many times. And I would draw pictures of what I felt I saw or try to describe the things that I imagined of what does it look like when flesh gets restored, when bruises are gone and wounds are covered up and eyes open and breath returns into the lungs. What does that look like? What does it look like when two men, brilliant white linen, show up and roll away a stone and the ground begins to shake? And well, all that stuff that you can look in scripture and that describes the resurrection, I went into that place and just thought about it. And it wasn't an everyday kind of thing, but many times I would be drawn back to that place. And one day I I felt like I needed to just draw a picture of like like an atomic bomb going off of life with just splashes of color going off in all directions from this one very central point of life. And and then I got to thinking, well what would happen if a body other than Jesus's body got hit by that bomb of of life. Like like you know you've seen or heard what happens when an atomic bomb actually was dropped and bodies just disappeared and only shadows were left, right? So what happens and that's sort of a a death bomb if it were, as it were, but what happens if a life bomb hit a body? What what does that what does that do to your DNA and your cells and your genetic makeup? I just started to contemplate those things, never with any intention of writing a book about it, but just because I wanted to know more about the resurrection. Some of the characters in my book come out of that contemplation. Because I thought a lot about, well, why is it that this most pivotal moment in all of human history, nobody saw? The women came after he was risen, out of the grave. The disciples came long after that. Why didn't anybody get to see that? And then I thought one day, you know what? I think there was somebody there. The Roman guards were there. Hmm. I wonder what that felt like. Who were those guys and what happened to them? So that contemplation led me in a whole other direction, thinking about, I wonder what their lives were like after that. Another contemplation that I started several years ago, I was really thinking about the interconnectivity of the generations. Now, a lot of that is because just where I'm at in life, 
I'm dealing with some generational issues, as it were. My parents, uh, who have always been just a source of great stability and wisdom for me, are slowly disappearing uh, with things like dementia and aphasia and just becoming more and more fragile. And it's a very hard thing to watch such capable people become incapable people and having to become their parents as sort of their guardians, my brothers and I and our, and our spouses, taking on that role. And look, I get it. This is not the first time it's happened in human history. It's just the first time it's happened to me. It's a, it's a difficult journey to walk out and walk through. And as I'm doing that, I'm also cleaning out their home, which is like an archaeological dig, frankly, of my entire life and several generations prior to my existence with stuff and photographs and documents and pictures and uh, books and all kinds of schoolwork and a war. I just so much stuff. So you Yes, you're cleaning out all the minutiae, but you have to stop every now and then and just look at these pictures and and read some of these like diary things and letters and and you get swept up back into the world of these people that some of them I never knew and some who've been gone from the planet for a very long time. Like one day I was digging through this <laughs> cubbyhole that I don't think anybody had been through since 1972. And at the very back was a just a um, grocery bag. Uh, and I opened it up. And it was my grandfather's clothing and his toiletry bag that had been in his hospital room. When he passed away, my parents brought it home. And there it was. So I opened that up. And I'm just hit with a flood of memories of my grandfather. So I had a good cry. And then I got rid of the things because they're, you know, but those types of moments and situations have me thinking a lot about the interconnectivity of the generations. And my children are all in their 20s and early 30s and beginning to live their own very productive lives. And so uh, praying over their lives also is a lot of, a lot of my prayer time is spent over over them and their situations and circumstances. And so I sort of stand between the generation that's leaving me and the generation that's coming up behind me and trying to be a place, a source of life and blessing to both those generations. And somewhere, I think, sort of at the beginning of the whole COVID crisis, I started listening to the song by Carrie Job and, what is it, Cody? There's another... To make sure I, Cody Carnes, that's it, of Elevation Worship, the song The Blessing. I'm sure most of you have heard it and probably have heard it many times. But during the last few years, when I was praying over the, the generations, I would just put that song on. And it's all scriptural, the blessing. May the Lord bless you and keep you, make his face shine upon you, be gracious unto you, lift up his countenance upon you and give you his peace. And then may his favor be upon you and a thousand generations and your children, all the, you know, the words. And I would let the, that just wash over me. And as I did that repeatedly, I was led into a uh, an exercise, I guess, um, spiritually, where I would let that song play and I would picture 
generations who've gone before me singing it over me. Like I would start with my parents and my grandparents and my great-grandparents. I don't really know the people beyond that. I know some names. I've seen some pictures. I don't really know their character, their stories very much. But I just pictured generations sort of stacked up behind who would come and lay their hand on my head or put their hands on my cheeks and just sing those words of blessing to me. I get teary-eyed just thinking about it. And I would just let them wash, just wash me with their love and their hopes for my life and their prayers for my life and their dreams for my life. And I would get wrecked by just the wonder of the blessings of a thousand generations coming in a river towards me. And then once I soaked that up good, I would turn around and just stretch out my hands in an exercise of faith and I would sing it over the generations behind me, over my children. I don't have any grandchildren yet, but I sing it over them anyway. And and just let those songs that river not get stopped up in me in a reservoir, but be a flow out to the generations that are coming behind me. And I would picture not just my children, but their entire generation and the generation that is beyond them and the generations that I will probably never even live to see. I heard an interview a few months back, a gentleman by the name of Ray Hughes, and he was talking about generational things and blessings, and the interviewer asked him, when's a good time to really start influencing the next generation um, for good and for God? And his answer stunned me, and I, I won't forget it. He said, I think the best time to influence them is about 100 years before they're born. So I, I thought, well, can I do that? Can I be a source of life to people who are not yet alive on the planet? Hmm. I practice that, and I use this song as a conduit for the blessings. Now, I know that many people have, they don't have what I have, in that I know of generations of people who have gone before me who are people of faith. I know not everyone has that. But I will tell you this, many times I wouldn't picture my own family members per se, but the Lord would say, you know, set them aside. You have been grafted into the family of Christ and into the lineage and the line of Jesus himself. So I want you to picture those ancestors who have gone before you, the Marys and the Josephs for sure, but the King Davids and the Queen Esthers and the Abrahams and the Moses and the Miriams and the Deborahs and the, all the biblical stories that you can think of, Old Testament and New, Peter and Mary Magdalene and, and Lydia and whoever else you know of, that they would just show up and they would sing that blessing over me. So if you're in a place where maybe family doesn't feel like a source of blessing to you, put them aside and practice with your family, the family of faith, who definitely are yours in Christ. I think it'll be a wonderful source of life for you as well. So in thinking about those two particular contemplations, more and more like a story started to stir and brew in my gut, I guess. And uh, and I would, and I, 
and I began to wonder, what does it look like if I could focus a story on the blessings of a thousand generations? I know in my experience in um, the church in the last several decades, there's been a, an emphasis on breaking off generational curses. The, the Bible does say that the sins of the fathers will be visited to the third and fourth generation. And I get that some of us, all of us, have some remnants and leftovers of our predecessors' choices that are impacting our lives. And it's, I think it's good and proper for us to deal with those things. But I also thought, okay, to the third and fourth generation, yeah, let's deal with them. But what does the blessings of a thousand generations look like? Do I get like compound interest on those kinds of of inheritance? And, and how do I get a hold of them? And how do I open that up so that I am a conduit onto the next generation? So that was the impetus for starting to write this book. And then I said it in present day which is a complicated day to set anything in, right? And I don't know about you, but some of the generational challenges of the last few years have been pretty, pretty stressful. Things like politics, yee, things like COVID and vaccinations and all those wonderful topics that you can discuss around a dinner table with great peace, right? Well, not so much. Um, we had lots of stresses and strains about those topics in our world, in across generations, across family lines, and all kinds of huh, yippee conflicts. But like I said, I don't have any grandkids involved in this. So, but I had lots of friends who did have grandkids and difficult situations with parents and grandkids, and trying to honor one another in the middle of everything, but also realizing that okay, we're just going to have to agree to disagree about some things. What does love look like in the middle of that? So, writing about that, not making the story about that per se, but acknowledging it in the context of what has been going on for the last few years, and particularly in how it has impacted generational relationships. I did make a bunch, a bunch, that's not true. I did make several choices to include autobiographical information in the storyline. There are some moments and situations within the story that are pulled from my own life and from my own ancestors. Um, but most, by and large, they're all culled from my imagination. And the leading of the Holy Spirit had took me on all kinds of little rabbit trails that I had never expected and down some rabbit holes even that took me several weeks to come back up out of. And I didn't, the only person in I think that's true. The only person in the book who is historically famous was I somehow I wound up with Francis of Assisi in there, but he's the only name that you would recognize as someone that is known historically because I thought I had my DNA done with uh, at Christmas time got that for a gift from my children and when you see the DNA and you see all these generations of people that you are possibly related to and and who I know a lot of them I am related to and none of them are famous. Like there's one maybe who kind of was known in his country for doing something or another. But by and large, most of us have family trees that are full of pretty ordinary folks. And so I wanted to make the story mainly about folks like you and me who are going about doing their best, trying to make wise choices that will be a blessing in our own lives, but in the lives of those who are yet to come behind us. And what does that look like? What are the ripples of everyday choices and everyday faith look like across 
a thousand generations. I don't, I don't really have, <laughs> I don't really have complete information on that, but this book is an exercise in discovering that evolving idea. So that's what I've included in my about the book section of this book. I've also started on a section called about the setting, but I'm going to talk about that next time around because the setting of this book is pretty unique and pretty special to me and to my family. But for today, I'm going to leave you with think about the bits and bobs, the extras that need to come at the beginning and at the end of your manuscript to make your book look like a book. The copyright page, the dedication page, the acknowledgement, your author bio, and then about the book, and any little extras you want to add as well. So until next time, I hope that encourages you. I sure love and appreciate you. Blessings and peace. Shalom, shalom. Shalom.